Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan. It is my privilege to serve here as a lead pastor and as one of the elders here at Seacoast. Um, and I really love this church. I love being a part of this with you. It is such a joy to come week after week. Uh, I love seeing you serve throughout the week. I love worshiping with you. And this, I truly believe this is a, a, a great community to be a part of. So if you are a guest, we're so great, grateful to have you with us here today. We're glad that you're here. Hope that you feel at home. And if you're a regular, thanks for being here week after week. It's so good to be together. Uh, We are in a series that we are calling Dear Church, and uh, this is a letter that is written to a church in Corinth. Now, if you have ever thought that the Bible is irrelevant, or if you've ever thought that the Bible needs to be updated, uh, updated because it doesn't quite fit in the 20th century, If you've ever felt like if you live as a Christian in the 21st century, that people will think you're irrelevant or radical or extreme or you just don't fit in, if that's, if you've ever had those thoughts, then this series is for you. In fact, look at the person next to you and say, today this is for you. Come on, tell them. Because we live in a world where it feels as if what we believe doesn't always line up. And there are times, and I've actually heard people say, well, the Bible just needs to be updated. It doesn't know how to address issues of today. To which I, when I hear that, my heart breaks because I think, well, first of all, it's hard that we feel that way. That's heartbreaking. But also, you don't understand the Bible. And you don't understand some of the people in the Bible because they are just as jacked up as we are today. And the culture that they lived in was not much different. And so we're going through this series called Dear Church, and it's a study through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in a town called Corinth. And Corinth is in a modern-day Greece. There's still a a town called Corinth to this day. There's the ancient city of Corinth that's still there. Uh, Corinth was a typical Greco-Roman city, except for it was one that was very prominent, It was located kind of strategically right on this uh, isthmus, Uh, so it it was a dual port city. Uh, It it kind of was the entrance to what uh, is called the Peloponnese area of Greece, and in the ancient world, if you didn't want to sail all the way around that part of the country and be exposed to the Mediterranean Sea, they would um, port in one side of Corinth and take their stuff across and put it on a ship on the other side of Corinth, it was easier and quicker to do that than to go all the way around. Even in the time of uh, Nero, he began building a canal there to connect and to divide the isthmus. Uh, He stopped that, but Napoleon finished it in the 1800s. So to this day, we see that Corinth is the strategic place. Now Corinth, the other thing about it being an ancient uh, Greco-Roman city and being a port city was uh, because it was a popular, everything ha- kind of had to flow through there um, in Greece, it also became a very eclectic place. Uh, there are temples in existence that we see to this day uh, of, of, to show how religious they were, how spiritual they were, but how synchronistic, how they kind of took a little bit from everything. Uh, there's a temple to Apollo. There's a temple to, the, it was part of this Caesar, um, the emperor cult, where they would worship the Caesar in Rome. Uh, there's a temple to the uh, family of Octavian. Uh, there's Asclepion, which is uh, for healing. Uh, there was, a, before the time of Paul, there was a famous temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, that was actually 
at the time reported to have up to a thousand um, cult shrine prostitutes, part of the worship of this goddess of love. And so you can see that this town was, had a lot of things going on. It also was known uh, to be very educated. There was a huge, uh, there's a little bit of everyone from all the different classes, everything from the elite philosophers. There was a lot of retired Roman soldiers and Roman uh, dignitaries who settled in Corinth. Uh, there was, we have evidence of freed slaves who then be, you know, rose to prominence. Uh, there was the working class and all their shops that we can still have the uh, evidence of their existence there. Uh, so we have kind of this very diverse group of people living in a town that valued education, that valued knowledge, that valued success and prominence. It was also a place, because they were very spiritual, but not necessarily religious, as they were seeking for truth, they also were not known um, as kind of a Bible Belt church. <laughs> this was a group of people that were known to be very immoral. In fact, in um, ancient Greek, to be a Corinthian was a slang for someone who lived a life of debauchery and drunkenness. And even in uh, old Greek plays, anytime someone from Corinth was uh, depicted in these plays, they were drunk. So this is kind of the imagery of around Corinth. It was just like, live the way you want to live, worship who you want to worship, but it's about success, it's about you being happy, it's about just live your life and enjoy what's out there. So as I said, none of us can relate to that today in modern San Diego. For us, I believe that this is one of the books in the Bible that actually we can probably resonate with the most. And so throughout the fall, we're going to be diving into this. And yes, if you've ever read it before, you'll know that it's going to deal with issues in the church, stuff like, hey, preferences. Who's the teacher you like to listen to? What type of worship music is your favorite? Who has the best, uh, you know, kids ministry and youth ministry? Didn't get into those, but preferences and how that can divide. It talked about sexual morality, which is never on anyone's mind today, but we'll talk about it anyway. And it talks about all the way from what does it look like to have a sexual relationship within the context of marriage? How about outside of marriage? And, and, and what about heterosexual, homosexual? All of this stuff is in there. And yes, we are going to go through this. It talks about the role of women in the church and their status in society. Why did it get so quiet? Okay. <laughs> um, I'll be out of town on those weeks. And uh, actually, I'm very excited that we're leaning into those and, and because I believe that it all really makes sense and that there's an appropriate and a, a good way that we can lean into these issues and talk about them. And I don't think there are issues and answers that will actually divide and turn people away. But I think when we really get to the heart of the truth of the gospel, the message of Jesus, and approach these from the heart of Jesus, that it actually will draw people in. And what we find in, the, in Corinth, in the letter to the Corinthians, is that though they were dealing with all these things, and they were a new church, they were probably, uh, mostly were new Christians, they were converts from Judaism or just uh, from the Greco-Roman culture, and so they were trying to figure this stuff out. And I love how Paul addresses and works with them. Even at times you can see he's a little frustrated with them, but he keeps pointing them back to what matters most. And so that's what we'll be doing throughout the fall. And as I said, I believe that this will draw people in, should not cause people to 
be pushed away from Jesus, but to be drawn into him. And so we want to do that. I want to invite you to pray with me as we get started. I want you to invite you to pray throughout this series because there are some topics that are hard to deal with, but they're important to deal with. And so I want to invite you to be a part of that. And I think that these things should help us see who our God is more and more. So join with me as we get started. God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you that you don't leave us in a world where we look around and think that you didn't see this coming. Lord, I thank you that you understand the world that we live in and you understand the har- our hearts and our deepest needs and our- the longing that we have for connection, our longing for significance, our longing to know you and to be approved, even when we don't realize that's a longing of our hearts. And so God, I pray that as we look into your word today, that you would transform us, you'd change us, you'd help us to experience your truth and the freedom of knowing you. And God, I pray for anyone in here this morning who's coming, who feels like because of their choices or because of their lives that they are on the outside, Lord, would you bring them in and remind them that the good news of Jesus is for every one of us here today. So change us, transform this church. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are going to uh, look at 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in a few verses in chapter 1, but before we get there, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Acts, chapter 18. So anytime you are reading something in scripture and we can have extra information, it's always helpful to find what that extra information is. Most of the letters that Paul writes, and even uh, we we can find it throughout the New Testament, often we find a cross-reference or where where we are introduced to these people. And in the book of Acts, so anytime you're reading a letter written by Paul, I encourage you to look in the book of Acts, try to find his interactions with those churches. According to the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, and he's very kind of historical. He's a historian who writes very methodically. So it gives us a, few, a little more color and insight. In Acts chapter 18, we're introduced to the people of Corinth for the first time. And it says this, After these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So we find the introduction to Corinth is this, as Paul shows up, and he meets a, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila who, who become very uh, important in the history of Christianity. We'll find that they are early converts to the faith and that they are leaders of a church. And so, but he meets them here in Corinth. They've recently been dispelled from Rome as most of the Jews were under the Emperor Claudius out of suspicion that they were uh, causing a revolt through their faith. And so they were now in Corinth they were tent makers or somehow leather smiths is what that really means is maybe they were making tents, maybe just working with leather. Paul had the same uh, skill and so he found them. They set up shop and they worked together for some time. He stayed with them. And uh, we know again, Corinth was a, a very a big city with a lot of commerce. And, and so they were working there uh, in Corinth together. And it says this in verse 5. Then Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, and Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. 
But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he kept speaking. Uh, This is his way of saying, as he continued to teach about Jesus, there was a segment of those of the Jewish population who, when it says blaspheme, they rejected the message of Jesus. So he said, okay, I've given you the chance. From now on, I'm just going to spend my time teaching among the Greeks. Verse 7, so he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So we find that even the head of the synagogue, a guy named Crispus, and his family converted to Christianity. And again, almost all the first Christians were uh, Uh, Jewish converts because it was a fulfillment of their prophecy of the Messiah. So we have the leader of the synagogue now becomes a Christian, all of his family. We see a movement of God. Many Corinthians are becoming Christians. They're being baptized. Let's jump all the way down to verse 12. So we, we know that Paul then stayed there, verse 11. He stayed there for a year and a half doing this, teaching. In verse 12, about a year and a half later, when Gallio was uh, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to our law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But there are questions about the words and names of your own law. Look after it yourself. I'm unwilling to judge on the, to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, so a new character, the leader of the synagogue. So here's the new leader of the synagogue named Sosthenes. They took a hold of him and they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned whatsoever about any of these things. So here's what's going on now. This is how we're introduced to the people of Corinth. So there's some strife going on. And Paul's now a year and a half of teaching and seeing people uh, convert to the faith. And once again, those in the synagogue try to uh, move against Christianity and say, once and for all, we need to stop this movement. And so they bring him before the proconsul, this guy named Gallio, and he uh, says, I don't want to hear your case. Now, I want to show you actually a couple of these slides here. Back up. I want to show you just some pictures of ancient Corinth. And uh, the first one here, this is just to give, uh, this is an artist's rendering, obviously not a real picture, of um, this is kind of one of the, the temples and all around that uh, big courtyard right in the middle there, that would be where a lot of the shops, the agora, so the tent makers and stuff would have shops all along there connected to near the temple of Apollo. Um, it's set up the, the same way as Rome. Uh, Corinth was actually designed as a mini Rome. Next to that, there was also a temple to the family of Octavian, and it's the same setup as in Rome. So it was trying to model and emulate what mattered most. Your worship of Apollo, your worship of the Caesar, those are the most important things, commerce and status. So this is kind of the central area where this is going on. Now the next slide I want to show you, this is a rendering of uh, that, based on archaeological evidence, we have this of an area called the Bema, and this is the judgment seat. So Paul would have actually been brought before there, standing on that stage when this whole thing took place. And we have a significant evidence that it looked like this to this day. It's pretty fun to go in Corinth and actually see where all this stuff is. And so Paul was standing there when all of this is happening and people are packed in to this courtyard hearing. 
all of this happen. And Paul, about to defend himself, and the proconsul says, hold on, hold on, on. You guys are talking about which gods you serve? Look around. <laughs> Look around. I'm not about to judge in the matters of your law. If it had to do with Roman law, sure, but you, I don't care. He says, I don't care about these things whatsoever. And then in verse 17, as we said that, people took hold of Sosthenes. This is a very interesting thing. Because Sosthenes here is the leader of the synagogue, and they beat him. So he's the one who was either persuaded by the rest of the people or said, we need to do something about Paul. Either way, he comes and brings this charge. He's the leader of the synagogue of the Jewish people in Corinth. He brings this charge to Gallio. He says, I don't want to hear it. He dismisses the case. So they, either because they're embarrassed that Sosthenes was unable to do anything, or they just, we don't really know why, but they take him, his own people, and they beat him, and Gallio watches the whole thing and says, I don't care. Go ahead, beat this guy. So that's Corinth. So now we know this is the book, this is the letter that we're writing to. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 1. The letter begins. Paul called as apostle of Jesus Christ and by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts this letter in very traditional fashion, introduces who's, who's writing, he says, grace to you. Uh, in Greek, there was, uh, you would start a letter and say greetings. It was a word uh, it, that was uh, keren. And uh, so keren would be great greetings. Karis is grace. So Paul takes his Greek greeting, and instead of just saying greetings, he says grace. I want you to hear this. It's a very Greek greeting. And peace. Peace was the Hebrew way of saying hello. It was shalom. It meant uh, I, I wish on you complete peace and fullness. And so what Paul does here is he says to the Greeks and to the Jews, I bring greetings. And not only greetings, but I bring you in the grace and peace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts the letter addressing a very diverse group. And he says, in Jesus, everything you're looking for is found. That's how he starts the letter. Now, yes, some of you caught who he's writing this with. This guy named Sosthenes. Now, this, these are the only two times we hear about him in scripture. We don't know if this is the same one. It may not be. Uh, Sosthenes was actually somewhat of a common name. But it seems strange that in the book of Acts, we're introduced to Sosthenes in Corinth, and then we hear from him next. It is most likely that this is the same Sosthenes. And I think it's so significant because Paul's about to address a group of Christians who are really trying to figure out how their faith matters in this world. And they're trying to figure out all the things that matter most and what's the hierarchy. And he starts off and he's writing this letter and the guy who's with him is this guy named Sosthenes who was the leader of the Jewish people a few years before and was beaten and left there. And as the Romans looked on, they didn't care. And I just wonder if the only people that day who cared were the very people who he was attacking. That when everyone beat him, his own people beat him, and the Romans looked and said, we don't care. 
Was it the Christians who leaned in and said, brother, come with us, who bandaged his wounds, who cared for him, who put their arms around him and said, it's going to be okay. And here a couple years later, he is with Paul as a disciple of Paul writing to the church. And why does Paul want Corinth the Corinthians to know Sosthenes is with him because what we're about to see is Paul wants to keep first things first. Please know, people, he's writing. What we're about to talk about is the good news of Jesus. And what I want you to remember is the good news of Jesus means the enemies of God can be brought in. Sosthenes, to them, they knew he was an enemy of God. He was against Christ. And the next time we hear of him, he is with Paul writing to encourage the church. This is the good news of Jesus. That means it is not what you have done that is going to get you in or keep you out. It is the power of the gospel and the good news that transforms and changes lives. And it has happened from the very beginning to this day. And so Paul, the very first thing he says is Sosthenes is writing this to you. And what we're going to see today is Paul says, we need to keep first things first. I remember when I used to play basketball, I got on a basketball team once. And, and you know, when you show up for basketball, you get a bunch of kids there. And the, the only thing we really want to do is you, you, you want to shoot, right? You get the ball, you start shooting around and you're playing. And that's how you warm up until the coach comes in the room. Comes in the gym and blows the whistle. Says, put the basketballs away. Because we're going to do first things first here, boys. I don't care how great you can shoot, but we're going to work hard as a team. And then you get to do the favorite thing of coaches, make your players run lines. Anyone ever run lines? You guys remember that? Yeah, you run lines. And if you screw up any time during the practice, you're going to run more lines. I think coaches like to watch kids throw up in this garbage can from running lines. Too soon in the morning, shouldn't say that? Okay, next service will change it. So, But the whole thing was a coach said, first things first. The first thing is we are going to be a scrappy, hardworking team. This is who we're going to be. We're going to start with what matters most. When I look at this letter, Paul is starting with first things first. Grace and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Know what this is about. He goes on. Verse 4. This is very common in Greek letters. You would think Give thanks for the people, but look at us. I thank God, my God, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even in the testimony concerning Christ, was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift. You're awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This sounds good, doesn't it? I thank God that you have everything you need. You've been enriched. You have gifts. You, you're confirmed. You're blameless till the end. This is a good start. Um, Paul's going to address very soon the fact that they were fighting with one another over their favorite preachers. And then he's going to get to a point where he talks and says, hey guys, um, I'm kind of upset with you because someone in your own church has been uh, sleeping with his stepmom and I don't like that. And uh, some of you are bringing each other to court over lawsuits, over petty issues, and that's kind of making Christ look stupid. And some of you, and, and, and so he goes on with all these issues that if 
you know those issues are coming, doesn't it seem strange that he starts with, I thank God for these things. But what Paul's doing is he's beginning with a reminder to them to remember who you really are. I want you to remember, before we get into all this, remember the truth of who you are. I think one of the things that as Christians we need to be, and why we talk about it so often here at Seacoast, we need to be reminded time and time again of who we really are because every time we fail and make a mistake, there's a little voice inside our head that wants to remind us or tell us that, oh, you're not worthy. Christ didn't die for that. Or maybe every time you see someone else whose sins are worse than yours, quote, and you say, I don't know. And we need to constantly be reminded of these truths. And so Paul starts off, and I just want you to show this letter. He starts off with remember who you are. There's three things he says. First one is remember that you've been enriched in him. In Christ, he's enriched your lives and he's given you everything that you need in Jesus. And, and for the Corinthians who valued knowledge, who valued kind of status and education and success, to be enriched was something they wanted to hear. They wanted to live their best life now, and they wanted to have a purpose-driven life, and they wanted to know how to make friends and influence people. They wanted to be outliers, and they wanted all of these things. This was the Corinthians. They wanted to know the secret. They wanted their lives to be enriched. No, those books aren't that old, just, just by the way. But Paul says, I want you to know that in Christ, he does enrich your life. He's enriching you in, in all speech and in knowledge. Those are two things that the Corinthians actually valued most was their eloquence, their, able to, uh, their ability to articulate and to argue things, and then finding knowledge. Those were kind of their top things that they loved. So he says, hey, in Christ, he's enriching you in speech and in knowledge. In Jesus, he's actually, you're looking for fulfillment in your life. Everything that you need, actually, Jesus can provide. As far as fulfillment, we are created for relationship with our God, and that is made possible through Jesus. So he reminds him, you've already been enriched in Jesus. You have every gift that's already, every gift that you need is right there. He says this in verse 7. You're not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in your church, you have everything you need. Don't look and say, you know, that church down the street, they have a better teacher. That church down the street has better worship. Or even, hey, the people that I sit around, they're, you know, they've got more Bible knowledge than me. No, he's saying you already have everything you need to fulfill what Christ has called you to fulfill. As a church, don't start looking at what you don't have and be grateful that God has already supplied what he has called you to. In your life, what God is calling you to, he has already provided it for you. One of my mentors a few years ago, uh, he told me once, and, and he said, God always pays for what he orders. I love the way he said that. If God calls you to do something, and he prepares you for something, don't worry, he'll get the bill. He, he, he can take care of the bill if he's calling you into it. And so this is a reminder that Paul's giving to the church at Corinth. You have all the gifts that you need. And by the way, you'll find in this letter that he talks about gifts and how some have they were kind of debating over what gifts were most important. Was it more important to be able to pray for people and see them healed? Or was it better to be a good teacher? Or was it better to be able to uh, kind of proclaim knowledge over others? And, and so they kind of said, that gift is more important than mine. And he says, no, 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 no. The gifts you have, you have everything you need. We'll look at that in a few weeks. 
And then find, so he says, uh, you've already been enriched. You have all the gifts you need. And then he says this, you are confirmed to the end. Not you will be confirmed in the end. You are already confirmed in Christ to the end. You are blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What they, he wanted them to remember was this truth spoken over them. Because of what Christ has done, you are already blameless in the eyes of God. You are already righteous. In other words, have a right relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now you might say, Ryan, you tell us that all the time. How many times do we need to be reminded? That because of Christ, we're blameless, not because of your ability to wake up this morning and read your Bible. Not because you prayed seven times last week. That doesn't make you blameless. The work of Christ on the cross is what makes you blameless. So Paul starts off and says, remember who you are. Before we can get into anything, let's talk about who you are in Christ. You can't change what Jesus has already given for you and provided for you. Now, he goes on from there, and we're going to get into it a little bit more in the weeks to come. But he says, now I've heard, I, I encourage you, he says in verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you. You may be made complete in the same mind and of the same judgment. And he says, for I've been informed, brothers, by some of you, uh, it, go down to verse 12, that some of you are saying, hey, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Saying, so I've heard that there's divisions. So I want to start off and say, be united. We're going to look at this in a couple weeks of what this really looks like. But, so, but he started, he didn't start with the issues. He started with their identity. We need to always go back to our identity before we deal with these issues. And our identity is in Christ Jesus, not in what you've done, what in, in what he has done. Paul makes that very clear. Now before, so we're not, we're going to skip the divisions here today. But we'll see that all of the issues that Paul addresses in the book of 1 Corinthians are issues that can be solved when they go back to remembering who they are. But I want to end in verse 17 and verse 18. He gets to the end of this section. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, what we find here is Paul, in beginning this letter, wants to keep first things first. Let's remember what Jesus has done, but then he gets down to this end. He says, because I didn't come here to persuade you by my eloquence. I didn't come to try to impress you. I came to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I wanted to keep first things first. And then he says this interesting phrase, and we're going to unpack it more next week. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Do you think in a, today's world, anyone thinks that Christianity and the message is foolishness? Do you think anyone says, oh, that doesn't work anymore. That only worked maybe 2,000 years ago, but not anymore. In fact, if you really understood the message of the cross, it is foolishness to, the, to this day. I mean, what can unite a group of people that are diverse? Why would we be united because of God? People who sit on both sides of the political aisle can sit next to each other and worship and put their arms around each other and care for one another. 
That doesn't work in 21st century. What, what, what kind of message says you can get something for nothing? This is a gift to you with no strings attached. That doesn't work. That's foolishness. What kind of God welcomes in the outcast, those on the margin, those who are hurting, those who have nothing to offer, those who can't put a penny into the offering, those who don't have any special gifts that people would be impressed with, they are fully sons and daughters of God. This is foolishness. It's so counterculture. And Paul said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he's not saying, hey, if you don't believe it, it's going to sound like foolishness, but we're the enlightened ones. He's saying, no, but when you experience the good news of Jesus, you'll see that he didn't try to say it's not foolishness. He said, you'll see that this is the very power of God at work in us. The message of the cross is the very power of God that transforms and changes lives. The message of the cross can take Sosthenes, an enemy of Christ, one who wants us expelled, and he can say, when you're pushing us away, Jesus is drawing you in. The power of God can take those who are on the outside and come in. Why can we deal with issues like sexual immorality in this book? Because the cross isn't saying, hey, until, if you don't have your act together, we're going to push you away. No, the very power of the gospel and the good news of Jesus says if you're pushing away, the power of God is drawing you in. And there is a place for you to come and to sit among us and, and have God work in your heart and process and, and bring you in. And by the love of God worked through his people, you can see the power of Jesus at work. That's the good news. The good news is very uncomfortable for all of us. It is. Because if we are actually living this stuff out, do you you know what it must have been like the first day Sosthenes showed up at church on Sunday morning? Think of that. Think of that. The week before, he was saying, I want these guys out of here. They're, they're fools. They, I, we can't, we got to stop them. Whatever happens, his heart is transformed. He's changed and he shows up on a Sunday morning at Seacoast. <laughs> and people are like, Sosthenes, Sosthenes is here. Isn't he the one? Didn't he get beat up by his own people? What's he doing here? Oh, I heard he's a Christian now. Uh, Sosthenes? I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm ready for him to be sitting next to me. Translate Sosthenes to someone else in 21st century. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those being saved, it is the power of God. There's nothing more powerful than someone who is an enemy of the cross and maybe even willfully and some unwillfully. They don't even know. But when they see the power of a community who loves them because Christ has already changed us and caused us to love and to embrace and to bring this message to others, that they will see the very power of the gospel, the good news will draw them in. That is the power of God. And guess what? Nothing else works. If you want to see if human wisdom works to draw people together and if human wisdom works to create unity and love among advanced cultures like ours, 
let's just see how well human wisdom is doing right now. The foolishness of the cross is the very power that will transform the world. Brothers and sisters, my dream is that we need to buy more chairs to fit here on a Sunday morning because there's a bunch of Sosthenes who are going to experience the power of God. And I'm not so interested in having a country club. It's fun, but it's more fun to sit next to brothers and sisters who want us out, who find that every time they say that Jesus says, come on in, the message is for you. That's the kind of church we want to be. It's messy. It's super uncomfortable. But it is the very power of God at work. And I don't know if I can think of anything in the world better than that. Our worship team is going to come up. And we're going to transition now to a time of communion. Because in a day when we say, let's keep first things first. Communion reminds us of what is first. In the very letter to the first Corinthians in chapter 15, Paul said, I brought to you things of first importance. And of first importance was Jesus Christ who lived, who was crucified and raised again for us. And so when we celebrate communion, this is our reminding our hearts of what is of first importance. And what's of first importance isn't somebody's moral lifestyle. It's not of how you are going to vote in the upcoming election. Of first importance isn't the music that is played on a Sunday morning. Of first importance isn't how eloquent I can teach to you. Of first importance is Jesus Christ who lived his life, a perfect life that we couldn't live, who died a death that you and I didn't want to make us right in the eyes of God. And when he rose again, it confirmed who he was. That is of what is of first importance. And that is what we're going to celebrate. So we're going to sing two songs here. And during these songs, we're going to invite you to the tables. And when you take the bread, the bread is a reminder of the body of Christ, the life that he lived. We want to remember that, that it was a real life that was lived for you and for me. And when you take the juice, it's a symbol of the covenant made in his blood. The covenant is a, is a deal that he made with us. He's trying to emphasize the note. It just missed it a little. It's, it's okay. But it's a deal that Jesus Christ made with his blood for you and for me. So when we take that, it's not a ritual. It's a reminder that we were on the outside. And he said, I'm going to make a deal. You are invited in. So during these songs, if you want to go alone, you're welcome to go alone. If you want to go with someone, if you want to go up there with your life group, if you want to go up there, find room around the room to pray, you could bring it back to your seat and reflect. However you want God to move in this place, let's use this as of first things first. The message of Jesus is what matters most. Pray with me. Lord God, I thank you so much that many of us have been in the place of Sosthenes. We were on the outside. Lord, maybe even not adamantly opposed to you, but God, there's times when our own hearts are on the outside. When we desire 
what makes us feel best and right in our own eyes and often it's contrary to what you want of us. And, but Lord, the foolishness of the cross reminds us that you're welcoming us in. That it's your life that will transform and change us. And so God, this morning as we remember you, I pray that we would remember that you've rescued us. And Lord, remind us that there are hundreds and thousands more right in our own community who need to experience the power of the good news. So remind us of them today. And let us be a church, Lord, where the power of the good news, the gospel is on display and where first things are first. We thank you, give you this time. Amen.